Well, if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 26. We're looking at the whole chapter this morning, and you can find it on page 935 in the Pew Bibles. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? That's why we are here this morning. That's the question for us all. That's why we've gathered to celebrate Easter on this morning to commemorate the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and all that that means for us. And so why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? For many, the possibility of life on other planets doesn't seem all that far-fetched. Even the possibility of an occasional appearance of a UFO. That doesn't seem way out there, but the thought that Christ would rise from the dead, that seems incredible. Some people believe in, in the paranormal and that the spirits of the departed sometimes haunt creepy places. Now, ironically, they never creep non-creepy non places like, like frozen yogurt stands or bounce houses, but it's always like asylums and prisons and, and really torn down, rickety old houses, right? That's not weird. That's not, you know, just off the wall. It's not absurd, but the resurrection is. Some people hold that life can evolve Non-life all the way up to man, but the dead cannot rise. Some people may even take seriously the thought that pink bunnies lay eggs with candy inside them, or that a heretic-punching early church saint can actually deliver presents to all the good boys and girls in the world by riding a sled you know, powered by flying reindeer, one of which whose nose apparently glows, right? But that's not weird, that's not strange, but the resurrection is. Or maybe to top it all off, you know, the, the pinnacle of, of thoughts that are out there as far as possibilities, some people actually believe that the Cubs are the best team in baseball. But the resurrection of Christ, that is not incredible. But Why? I mean, if you believe in random mutations could produce other species, or if you were to believe that there's a God out there who created all things, then why is it so far-fetched to believe that God raises the dead? This morning, we're going to be in Acts chapter 26. Now, we've got to be careful here because when we come to the Bible, we kind of come with this um, initial thought that like people back in that day, they're so radically different than us that they can believe some really crazy stuff. You know, it's like they're so naive or just God loved them, so innocent in mind that, that they can hold. It's easy for them to hold to ideas like the resurrection of Christ from the dead because all of these, these weird things were happening around them. They didn't have science to explain it. And so obviously what they did is they, they attributed that to the supernatural, right? That had to be God. God had to do something miraculous. And that's why these things have occurred. And we're coming to Acts 26 and we're dealing with the Apostle Paul. And, and I think it's easy for us to come and think that when we look at this text. But we have to realize that the fact that God would raise the dead was a ridiculous notion in Paul's day as well. That question that I began with, why is the thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? That's, that wasn't my question. That was actually Paul's question in this text. You see, just like in our day, people of Paul's time found it difficult to believe that God raises the dead. And yet, despite how inconceivable that might be, despite how, how hard that would be to grasp, if it happened, if it's true, then it's history. And we must accept it, no matter how incredible that thought may be. And so we need to look at the truth of the resurrection at the center of this controversy, not just for the sake of knowing what the Bible said once upon a time happened, whether you actually believe that happened or not, but so that we might see how that issue at the center of that controversy actually answers so many of the controversies we have in our own hearts today. We are going to see from Paul's testimony that true gospel conversion, true saving faith, true redemption, true transformation of life cannot be attained apart from the resurrection of Christ from the dead. 
And finally, I pray that, that our eyes would be open to the fact that the resurrection of Christ is what gives the gospel call its power. And if I could put all of that together in sort of one statement to encapsulate what we're going to see from this passage this morning, it would be that new life in Christ gives incredible testimony to the resurrection. New life in Christ gives incredible testimony to the resurrection. And so may the Word of God open our eyes this morning so that we might turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that we may receive the forgiveness of sin and a place among those who are sanctified through faith in the resurrected Lord Jesus. And so let's begin reading Acts 26, verse 1. It says, So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And and now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities." In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and the commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and stand on your feet for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to a heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance." For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus with a loud voice said, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. 
For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with him. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. As we see here in Paul's defense, new life in Christ gives incredible testimony to the resurrection. But to understand this incredible testimony and the centrality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, we need to consider the controversy of the resurrection, conversion because of resurrection, and the call of the resurrected Lord. And so first, the controversy of the resurrection. Now, once again, what we have here is the Apostle Paul giving his defense. This time, he's now before King Agrippa II. And once again, just like before, Paul is not ultimately defending himself. He's not ultimately defending his good moral character, his innocence in any and all legal matters. His primary and ultimate concern, the reason why he is on trial, is because of the hope of the resurrection. If you remember back in chapter 22, Paul addressed the mob that had almost killed him because they had presumed that he had defiled the temple. He told them of this same event, told them of his vision of the resurrected Lord and how Christ himself, the risen one, the holy and righteous one, saved him and set him apart to be his apostle to the Gentiles. And it was when he said that dirty little G word, Gentiles, right there, that they tried to kill him yet again. And so on the next day, um, in Acts chapter 23, the Roman tribune, Claudius Lysias, brought him before the Jewish council. And he brought him there because he's just trying to figure out why on earth... These people want to kill him. Why are they accusing him of all these things? And as Paul stood before Lysias, and and as he stood before the council, he says in chapter 23, verse 6, it is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you. And again, what they do? They try to rip him apart. When the plot to assassinate him was discovered... The tribune sent him away by night to Caesarea, guarded by 470 soldiers, to the Roman governor Felix there in Caesarea. And when Paul gave his defense before this Roman governor Felix in chapter 24, verse 21, again Paul says, let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, that it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. And despite the fact that neither the tribune, Claudius Lysias, nor the governor Felix could find anything in him deserving of death, Paul sat in prison for two years. They knew Paul was innocent. They knew that he had done nothing that was seditious or riotous in any way, and yet Paul sat in prison. Why did Paul sit in prison for two years? Well, it's because Christ is still risen, and that's why he's on trial. Paul wasn't ultimately there to try to defend his own citizenship, to try to defend himself before the crowd. He was giving testimony to the fact that Christ is risen from the dead. That's why he's on trial. That's why he stayed in prison. When Felix was then replaced by Festus, the new governor, immediately heard his case, again finding no fault. He had committed no evil. There was nothing deserving of death. And it even Festus recognizes that the central issues of the dispute of the Jews against Paul, he says in chapter 25, verse 19, were regarding their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. 
So again, the resurrection is at the heart of this controversy, and it's at the heart of Paul's defense. And so when we get here to chapter 26, and Paul now stands before King Agrippa, this Roman-educated, Roman-appointed vassal Jewish king. This is, this is the grandson of Herod the Great, the, 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 king, the Jewish king that killed all of those boys when he heard about the birth of Jesus. This is the nephew of Herod Antipas, the one who stood affirming Pilate's decision to allow Jesus to be put to death. This is the son of Herod Agrippa I, who persecuted the church and who, who had the apostle James killed by the sword, and this is, this is Agrippa, the brother of Bernice, his mistress. This is who he's standing before right now. And so Paul is standing before him, but we need to be clear that this trial really does not have any weight. It's not like Agrippa can come in and, and sort of change the way things are going to go. This is a show trial. This is an opportunity for Paul yet again to give his testimony. That's all it is and nothing more because Paul has appealed to Caesar and to Caesar he is going to go, right? There's no doubt about that. Nobody's going to get in the way of that. Nobody's going to stop that. And so Paul is given another opportunity to defend his hope in the resurrection. It's not about him. It's about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so in verse 1, Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. And according to the custom of the day, Paul first addresses his judge. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews. Now, Paul's not just kind of being cheeky here because he knows that Agrippa is a really immoral man. He says that because, verse 3, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. And therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Now, of course, we preachers, we got to say something about that. We love that statement right there, right? Paul's about to preach a really long sermon. So he says, listen to me patiently, just like I'm saying that to you. Listen to me patiently, right? But notice that, that Paul said that he was glad to make his defense before Agrippa because Agrippa was familiar with the customs and the controversies of the Jews. That's big, right? Now, now, Paul might have had a number of controversies in mind, but the one thing that he makes explicit, that he specifically deals with, is the controversy regarding the resurrection of the dead. He says in verse 6, I now stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. And so this is an historic promise made by God to real people, and it's the reason why he's on trial. These people have faithfully, they've accurately recorded this in Scripture. People have held to this. Our people have held to this for years and years and years, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And so the majority of our people throughout our history held to the same hope. It's the reason why night and day they continued to worship God. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews of all people, O king. And what is that hope? Verse 8, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? And so defending the resurrection was controversial even in Paul's time, even among the Jews. Does that surprise you? I mean, even among the Jews, you had two main parties. You had the Sadducees and you had the Pharisees. The Sadducees were basically deists, right? The, sure, there's a God who made all there is. He gave us our law. He gave us our cultural identity, but he's just removed. He's disconnected, has nothing to do with anything anymore. But they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in spirits or angels or that there would be life after death. This is all there is. This is all that matters, right? And what, so what matters for you as a Jew is that you carry on your Jewish heritage. That's what the Sadducees thought. Those who aligned themselves with the party of the Pharisees, who at that time, that was the majority of Jews held to, to this view, 
they did hold to a resurrection of the dead, but that resurrection, they believed, would come at the, in the day of the Lord, when, when at last God would bring judgment upon all the nations, okay? God would judge all their enemies. God would establish his forever kingdom of Israel here on this earth, but they never affirmed, they would have never agreed with the fact that their Messiah, their coming deliverer, their coming king would die and rise again, and then that that king would then turn around and offer the same hope of resurrection to the Gentiles. That was absurd. They would never have agreed to that. That's not the Christ that they were hoping for. And then you have the pagans, right? You've got the polytheistic Romans, you know, Greek background kind of folks like Festus here. These folks believed that all matter, like the physical body, was evil, right? And their view of the afterlife was actually getting rid of the body, getting rid of all that was evil and immoral. Like, so their idea of heaven was a life that was removed from the body. So the idea of a bodily resurrection, that's no glory for them at all. That just seems preposterous. That seems like a continuation of good and evil. They they wouldn't have wanted that at all. And so those are the three sides that Paul is speaking to. Paul's view is unique. He was, the resurrection that he was defending was controversial. And friends, even when you think about it, why, why wouldn't it be? I mean, even back then, people didn't just get up and walk out of their graves. Everybody agreed that this Jesus was a real guy. Everybody agreed that this Jesus was a real guy who really died. Agrippa's uncle Herod, Antipas, was sure of that. So was Pilate, who had served as the governor of Judea decades before Festus had. And this whole issue has been stirring like a hornet's nest for decades. It's never been quiet. It's never been silent. It's been going on and on and on. So people know about what's going on here. They know the history surrounding it. And verses 5 and 6 make it clear that everyone's aware of the history. Jesus really lived. Jesus really died. And the church was spreading like wildfire because everybody in the church was certain that Jesus rose. People often ask, well, did he really die? Did he, maybe, maybe he just swooned. Maybe somebody, you know, kind of pulled him down off the cross before he's really dead, kind of resuscitated him, and he kind of went on with life and, and married a woman and had babies and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But but if there was anything that the Romans knew how to do back then, it was to kill people, right? It wouldn't have given the body of Jesus over to Joseph of Arimathea unless they were dead sure that he was surely dead. All of Jesus' disciples knew that he was dead, right? They weren't running around kind of trying to hide things. I mean, they were in mourning, these, these women that went to the tomb that Easter morning, they were not going there because they were so excited that they were going to be the first ones there to see this empty grave. They weren't going there because they thought that Jesus might leave some Easter eggs behind for them. Now, they went there to help it. You know, Jesus' body might stink as bad. The disciples weren't running around saying to one another, the Lord is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. Hallelujah. They were weeping. They were heartbroken. They were tempted to throw in the towel and to return to their old jobs. When the risen Jesus appeared to them on numerous occasions, they didn't start preaching a false gospel. It's like, well, Jesus lives, yes, but but he lives within our hearts. You see, it's a a theological metaphor. I I mean, his body's really in the ground, but Jesus lives on in our hearts, and that's what matters. No, they, like, like my grandma lives on in my heart. No, but he, they're saying he suffered, he died, he rose again bodily, and that doesn't just happen. You don't say of your grandma, my grandma lives. Well, of course she lives. She lives on in your, your heart. You'll carry her memory with you always, you know? No, 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 that's not what I mean. I, I mean, I went to her grave. And her tombstone had been rolled over. And there's a big hole in the ground. 
I looked down in the hole. I could see the casket, and the casket was open. And you know what was in the casket? Grandma's favorite apron, neatly folded, and that was it. Well, maybe it was grave robbers. Well, yeah, you know, we were kind of wondering that too, but, but just the following night, we, we were in our house, all locked up for the night, and then suddenly, out of nowhere, Grandma appears to us, just right there in the kitchen. And she was making her cinnamon rolls. I mean, you remember cinnamon rolls, right? She was making her cinnamon rolls. And we ate the cinnamon rolls. And they were wonderful. And she wanted to throw a party. And so we ended up having as many as 500 family and friends coming over. And she's fixing thousands and thousands and thousands of cinnamon rolls. And we're all eating the cinnamon rolls. And it was glorious. And this happened over 40 days that she kept showing up, fixing the cinnamon rolls, until one day we're all gathered together and the Lord takes her up into heaven bodily, right? Wearing her favorite apron, taking her cinnamon roll recipe with her to the heavens. And we said, hallelujah, right? Could you leave the recipe? And so we're waiting for that day when, when finally we will be rejoined with Grandma in glory forever to feast upon cinnamon rolls once more. You go and you say that to other people, and they're going to have you admitted. All right? Hey, uh, let's go ahead and fit you for a new jacket. All right? We'll, we'll go ahead and we'll find you a nice new room, padded walls all over it. And we'll slip some antipsychotics in your food. It'll be so tasty. What do you think? You see, even back then, it was insane. This was insane, unless it was true. That's how Festus responded there in verse 24. Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Now, notice he doesn't call him an idiot. This is say. You are a fool. You are stupid. You, you're so backwoods, bumpkiny, I can't believe it. No, he, said, he could clearly tell that Paul had great learning. But Paul said in response, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. This is what really happened. Jesus really was the first to rise from the dead. And my record and my argument is clear, and so it's only logical to believe. I've said nothing but what the prophets and Moses have centuries before said would come to pass. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. This has been going on for a long time. People know about this. And then he turns to Agrippa and he says, do you believe the prophets? Do you believe what they said all those years ago, right? Can you not see how this is a fulfillment of it? I know that you believe. Defending the resurrection is controversial. It's controversial because of the widespread implications of it. You see, if Jesus really did rise that he's not some moral teacher from Nazareth who got himself mixed up in a controversy and was killed by the Romans. If Jesus really rose, then he really did fulfill the scriptures and his resurrection is proof that he is indeed the son of God. If Jesus rose, then the church is not a riotous sect. It's not a, a dangerous cult of crazy people who worship a crucified man as a god. If Jesus rose, then Paul was right. He was right about the law. He was right about the temple. He was right about the true people of God being comprised of both Jew and Gentile, all who would repent and believe in Jesus. If Jesus rose, then it proves that God really will condemn sin, that all will rise and stand in judgment before him on the last day, and that the only hope that any of us has for eternal salvation, body and soul, is through faith in him. You cannot make sense of these controversies apart from the resurrection. 
In fact, you cannot make sense of Christianity apart from the resurrection. There's no explanation for why a no-name carpenter from a potunk town in Nazareth would be worshipped as a god worldwide for over two millennia by billions and billions and billions of people, many of whom were willing to die for their faith, refusing to recant even while burning at the stake or being nailed to crosses or eaten alive by animals. You cannot explain that without the hope of the resurrection. And you add to that the fact that Christianity, of all other religions, would be the easiest to disprove because it is public. A public religion is the most easy to falsify. You think about all of these other religions that began because of some private you know, vision from the Lord. Think about Islam, right? God appears to Muhammad. Or you think about Mormonism. God appears to Joseph Smith. He's got these tablets of gold. What happened to those? I don't really know. Just take my word for it. You just got to believe. Got to believe what I'm saying to you. This is a public, public ministry. Throughout history, God has revealed himself publicly. God spoke not to one, but to many. The holy and authoritative scripture was given for public observance. Jesus' life was public. His ministry was public. His death was public. His tomb was public. His resurrection appearances were publicly observed by as many as 500 witnesses. And in Paul's day, many of those were still alive, and you could actually go and talk to them. The first of them were women. And as we saw earlier in that video, if you're making up a story in that day, right, about the greatness of your risen Lord and that didn't really happen, you don't make women your first witnesses. But this is how it unfolded. Like I said before, it's not as though any of the disciples were all dressed up in their Easter best waiting for angels to roll the stone away on that Easter morn. No, they were, if they were up, they were probably still in their PJs drinking coffee, looking for the classifieds so that they could find a new job. This wasn't some wish fulfillment because no one was expecting it to happen. And nor was it a metaphor, because there was an empty tomb, and there were many, many witnesses. This was no mass hallucination. You don't get 500 people scattered all over in different places, suddenly having the same, like, smoking the same peyote or whatever, having the same vision. That's not the way it went. This is history. This is public history. Public history that could have so easily been disproven, the most easily falsifiable, but instead, through the public ministry of the church, Christianity has grown into the world's largest religion, not by force, but through proclamation and through sacrifice, because Jesus publicly died and Jesus publicly rose. You cannot understand the controversies of Paul's day apart from the resurrection and you cannot make sense of the controversies in our day apart from the resurrection. Because here's the thing, if Jesus rose, then there must be a God who did that. And if God did that, God performed that miracle. What, what other miracles could he not also perform? Parting the Red Sea, creating the world, sustaining all there is. Why is that so hard to believe? Why would we accept this one miracle and none of the rest? If Jesus rose, then there is life after death and someone who will determine how we will be spending it. If Jesus rose from the dead, then all his claims are true, and we cannot reduce him down to some prophet, some lunatic, some morally inspiring teacher. If Jesus rose from the dead, then all his teachings are true, that we must be born again, that all who believe in him will live forever, and all who reject him will be eternally condemned. 
But he will send his promised Holy Spirit who would inspire his apostles to write his authoritative and inerrant word to teach us all that we need to know for life and for godliness. All of the controversies that you and I could face flow out of this one historical fact that Jesus rose from the grave. Friends, if Jesus rose from the grave, it changes everything. See, this is not some optional, some tertiary, somewhat embarrassing Christian teaching that we can just try to tiptoe around. The resurrection is at the heart of the controversy, both in Paul's day and in ours. It's at the center of the controversy in your heart. I want you to think about your life. Why is it that we are so tempted to sin? Why do we chase after these other desires? Is it not at least in part that in that moment I am failing to believe that there is a risen Lord and Savior who's right now reigning, right now living, right now sending his Holy Spirit to work in my heart? I'm choosing not to accept that, but instead to live for something else, some other Lord. It all goes back to the resurrection. And so why is the thought incredible to you that God raises the dead? And so we have to establish that one first and foremost. The resurrection is at the heart of the controversy. That's by far our longest point. Still be patient with me. But we must also see that conversion, second, is only possible because of the resurrection. Friends, I want you to understand that conversion is more than you choosing to move from one religion to another or or from one way of thinking or, or believing to another. True conversion is first and foremost a work of God that delivers us from the domain of darkness and transfers us into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. It is first and foremost the regenerating work of God that resurrects our dead hearts, taking those who were dead in their sin and making them alive in Christ. Our response of conversion, which is repentance and faith, this turning away from all that we once thought or lived for to that former manner of life, to follow Christ, that is not simply a matter of choice. It is the work of our resurrected Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Look at how Paul talks about his own conversion. Verse 4. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time that they are willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. So all the Jews know that I was very, very religious and I was brought up according to the strictest party of our religion. Verses six and seven. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. And so sure, this this. I had this hope, and this hope is the same that all of my people were hoping for. It was rooted in the historic work of God and his word, just like all the Jews, but it was a false hope because I did not know how the promise would be fulfilled. I had it wrong. And in fact, I had it so wrong, verse 9 that I myself was convinced that I ought to actually do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Because that's who I was. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests. I mean, how ironic is that? They were the saints, not me, not the priests. They were the saints. But when they were put to death, I actually cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues, and I tried to make them blaspheme. I thought they were committing blasphemy, but it turns out that I was trying to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury, 
against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So I thought I was so right, but it turns out that I was dead wrong. My former manner of life, my beliefs, my hopes, my religion, it was all wrong because I was living in opposition to the name of Christ. You see, despite all of Paul's religious zeal, Paul was still dead in his sin. Until verse 12. It says, In in this connection I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and the commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. I had other witnesses with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground... I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. That's a strange phrase, but what that means, a goad is a sharp stick that you would use on herds of animals to get them to go where you wanted them to go. They might try to kick against it, but guess what would happen? It would hurt them and they would go. That's the whole point. Jesus is saying, why are you trying to rebel against me? You're going to go where I want you to go. He continues on, and I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to anoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now we've heard this conversion story a number of times as we've made our way through the book of Acts. But friends, do you realize that this only makes sense if the resurrected Jesus was the one who appeared and saved him? If Jesus had not risen, then what on earth is this light that knocked him to the ground and struck him blind? Right? All you Trekkies are like, UFO. If Jesus had not risen, then what's with the statement, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting? Now, he may have been persecuting a religious cult at that point, but he wasn't persecuting Jesus. If Jesus had not risen, why did he say, I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things which you have seen and what you will see? If Jesus had not risen, who delivered Paul all of those times? Through whom had he received that help that comes from the Lord? I mean, you remember chapter 23, verse 11, don't you? Paul sat in his cell and Jesus appeared to him and said, take courage For you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you will also testify in Rome. If Jesus had not risen, then Paul was not sent. And if Paul was not sent, then why on earth did he endure such beatings, imprisonments, and stoning, and being shipwrecked, in constant danger, in sleepless nights, in deprivation, often near death. Guys, you don't have to know all that much about Paul to know that his life was radically changed, that he had gone from death to life, from a terrorist to an apostle. And that's not because he decided just to believe something different or because he happened to start feeling bad about how he had treated those Christians and he's trying to make amends. This is far bigger than an Ebenezer Scrooge kind of change. And even Scrooge needed the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future to change the way that he did. No, this kind of conversion can only be explained because of the resurrection. Jesus appeared. Jesus gave him eyes to see. Jesus saved him. And Jesus commissioned him to proclaim the resurrection. And friends, those who have truly been converted by the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ desire to obey the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. 
So in verse 19, therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and then in Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance, just like I have labored to do with all good conscience up until this day. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. But to this day, but to this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and to great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Friends, those who have truly been converted, those who have had a resurrection of hearts, having been brought from death to life, are saved so that they might proclaim the resurrection of Christ both with their words and with their lives. True converts testify both to small and great of the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. True converts live in such a way that their lives, now changed by the grace of God in Christ Jesus, testifies to the fact that God raises the dead. Meant to look at you and be able to see that you have been brought from death to life. Your conversion is that evidence. Maybe not as dramatic as Paul's, but nevertheless, just as evident. Just a short time later, Paul would write his letter to the Ephesians. And in chapter 2, he would tell them that we either all were or, or maybe some still are dead in their sin, enslaved by their sin, and condemned in their sin. But he said, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, that even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It's by grace that you have been saved. And not only that, but you have been raised with him, and you have been seated with him in the heavenly places, so that at the coming ages, God might show the riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Friends, that only makes sense if Jesus rose from the grave. If God has truly done that work in you, making you alive, raising you with Christ, seating you with Christ, then your words and your life were given to you to be an incredible testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ as both an historic event and as an evident reality in your heart. This is not just some get-out-of-hell-free card. That's not why anybody really comes to Jesus. When people hear you, both small or great, do they hear you testifying of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? When they see you living your life, do they see someone who has turned from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, who has received the forgiveness of sin and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in the resurrected Jesus? Do they see someone who repents and who turns to God and who performs deeds in keeping with that repentance? Because your conversion, though perhaps not as dramatic as Paul's, but your new life in Christ is also meant to be the same incredible testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so we have seeing the centrality of the resurrection both to the controversy and to the conversion. But before we go, we want to also consider third, the call of the resurrected Lord. Verse 18 tells us why Jesus died and rose again. Why he saves, why he commissions his people to bear witness to his name. It's in order to, that they might be the means through which God opens their eyes to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Jesus. And so apart from Christ, 
This passage says that we are blind to the truth and glory of Jesus. You might, not, you might be able to hear the name. You might be able to know something of what the Bible teaches about him, but you're blind to his glory. It says that we all live in and we love the darkness, that we are under the rule and reign of Satan, that we are unforgiven, unholy, willfully destined for eternal separation from God. That's who we are apart from faith in Christ. But when someone truly becomes a Christian, this is what happens. God gives them eyes to see. To see through the proclamation of the gospel so that they can now behold the glory of Christ. And now look at him differently. Not like they ever looked at him before. They see the truth and the beauty of it and they, they believe and they love him and they want to follow after him. <clears throat> and not only can they see the truth and beauty of Jesus, but they also turn from sin. So they see, they turn. They turn from darkness. They turn from the power of Satan to God. By, they turn by repenting and performing deeds and keeping with their repentance. So they see, they turn, and then third, they receive. They receive both the forgiveness of sin. And guys, by this, we don't, don't mean just like holding to the abstract notion, oh yeah, the Bible says that, that God has forgiven me but to actually be able to rest in the fact that my sins have been forgiven. That when Christ, when God looks upon me, he doesn't see my sin any longer. He doesn't see me as the screw-up that I know that I am. But he sees the righteousness of Christ. To be able to rest in that. And not only do we receive this forgiveness of sin so as not to live in fear because we're not good enough before God, but we also receive a place among those who are sanctified by faith. And through faith, we are growing in holiness and righteousness. Through faith, we are sanctified by actively living by faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Guys, get this in terms of sanctification as well. It's not about what you do. You cannot be sanctified if you're trying to have faith in yourself. You cannot be sanctified if you're looking to yourself. You're sanctified by faith in Jesus. By looking to Him. Look away from yourself. And look to Christ. When you look away from yourself and you look to Christ, what do you see? You see holiness. You see righteousness. You see truth. And as you keep your eyes on that, what happens? You become what you behold. As we behold the glory of Christ, what happens? We're transformed into his image from one degree of glory to another. And this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So we just set our eyes on Christ. We keep looking to him through faith. And God does this work in changing us as we keep our eyes on him. If you take your eyes off of him, you start looking at your toes. The only thing that's going to grow are your toenails. And just like Paul, those who have trusted in Christ receive help that comes from God so that they can testify both to small and to great of the life, death, resurrection of Christ in accordance with the Scriptures. Though we have been given this joyful responsibility to proclaim the truth and beauty of the gospel to the nations, I don't want you to miss where the power of the gospel call comes from. I want you to look very carefully at verse 23. Paul is very intentional there to say nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, get this, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Who's he? It's the resurrected Lord Jesus. 
See, Jesus died and rose again to proclaim the light. Yes, he is proclaiming the light through the mouths of his people, just like Paul is here or I am to you. But the power is not in our words, but in the fact that the resurrected Lord Jesus is proclaiming the light. He proclaims the light. We proclaim the gospel. We appeal to the conscience. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. But the resurrected Christ is the one who proclaims the light in order to open the eyes of those who are living in darkness so that they might turn to God. Paul could not do that. I cannot do that. You cannot do that. Only Christ The resurrected, living Lord Jesus Christ can do that as we bear witness about him. So listen. Guys, don't listen as as these are words from me. I want you to listen for the voice of Christ. When you look around here, I don't want you to see just, you know, a bunch of Christ's people. I don't want you to see this guy who's, who's trying to be a pastor of a church. I pray that you'd open your eyes to see Jesus. Not, not me, but to see Jesus. Don't be like Festus who scoffs. You are out of your mind. Now, he's polite, but he's still scoffing. Don't be like King Agrippa who sidesteps the whole issue. Well, in this short time, will you persuade me to be a Christian? Well, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me might become as I am except for these chains. Unfortunately, they did not listen. and They did not see They withdrew. They affirmed his innocence. This man has done nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. He could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. But they did not respond to the gospel call. Friends, what about you? Will you hear this testimony? Will you hear these true and rational words in accordance with all that was foretold by Moses and the prophets so long ago? Has not being from the lips of one who has lost his mind, but from the lips of the resurrected Lord Jesus, who is proclaiming the light to you? Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me, would be as I am, to see, to turn, to receive everlasting life through the hope of the resurrection so that your new life in Christ would give incredible testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So the people would be able to look upon you and to hear your words and know that our Redeemer lives A life that is only possible because of our incredible God who raises the dead. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you that as we think about the gospel, as we think about your message, as we think about what we are called to, that it is never about us and what we do but about who Jesus is and what he has done. And God, I pray that you would bring to bear upon our souls a deep recognition and, and fear and, and honor and delight in the necessity of Christ's resurrection. I pray that we would be able to see all the more clearly what that means for us, how so many of the controversies in our lives, how, how our, our conversion to faith and how this call that is given to go and spread the gospel, this, this call that seems so overwhelming and impossible, can only be accomplished if Jesus is risen. And may we believe that it's so. God, we get to celebrate new life. 
We get to bear witness to testimony of your resurrection. May it not be lost on us. May we not be just apathetic or indifferent. May we not scoff at our hearts. Lord, give us eyes to see. eyes to see Jesus. It's in his name I pray. Amen.